So I've been given the high sign that we're ready to go. What I'm going to I'm going to tell you briefly what we're going to do. Then we're going to have a word of prayer, and we're going to do the thing we said we were going to do. Okay. Um, this afternoon uh, we're going to be spending a little bit of time together. And uh, by the way, my name is Cameron DeVazier. I'm the pastor of the Kalamazoo Seventh Avenue Church, and we have one Kalamazooite in here. And so I don't want to say that that's the best student in the room, but I'm going to be expecting the most from her, Sister Williams, when we get home. <laughs> But I assume that the rest of you are representing other churches, and you're going to be doing whatever you learn here, you're going to be putting it to use in your local area, right? Yes, they timidly said. So um, with that expectation, we don't want to be just pie in the sky. We want to be practical. We want to dig in and put some stuff to you. So with all of that said, I'm going to be presenting what we call the cycle of evangelism. That's going to be the first chunk of our time together. Then we're going to take a little break, and then we're going to dig deeper into the first couple of phases of those, soil preparation and seed sowing. That's what we're going to cover this whole afternoon. But before we dive into any study, let's start with a word of prayer, shall we? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this beautiful afternoon. Thank you that you give us the opportunity not only to learn of you, but to work with you and for you in this world. Please, Lord, I would ask that you guide and direct our study now. Please not only give us information, but Lord, let us have some transformation to become more like Jesus, to work for Jesus, and to hasten Jesus already soon coming. For we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. This is a fun presentation entitled, Why Jesus Was Always Talking About Plants. I don't know if you've noticed, if you read through the gospel record, when Jesus gives parables, and sure, he talked about other things, right? Uh, sheep, uh, catching fish, he talked about uh, saving money, but most of the time, far and away, most of his stories were based on the agricultural cycle. So which leads to the question, why was he always talking about plants? And you could say that yes, there was an agricultural society, and that's something that people could relate to, but there's something deeper in Jesus' understanding of plants and why he was always talking about it. To do this, now I've got it on the screen, but it's also in your Bibles. If you're follow-along people, which I appreciate, or if you're note-takers, that's a good thing too. But where we're going is the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, writes the prophet, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me out to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. I'm guessing that everyone in this room is familiar with those words. I'm also guessing that we didn't know them from Isaiah 61. Most of the time when we quote that passage, we're not going to the Old Testament, we're actually using it from the New Testament. Does anybody recall where we would find that? I'm not looking for chapter and verse, but what? Thank you, that's right. Luke chapter 4 is what you're looking for, if you're looking for book and chapter. Jesus went to his hometown of Nazareth. So he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, I don't know if any of you were for the morning worship this morning, morning devotional, but you notice that Jesus had a custom, a habit. He just went to church because it's Sabbath. That's what you do, right? And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. So clearly Jesus is looking for something particular. He's going through the scroll, and he finds what we now refer to as Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, 
to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, we're all familiar with that, but what we're often not familiar with is the rest of it, because what Jesus does there is kind of uh, give a summary statement, a little synopsis, and a truncated version of Isaiah 61. Now, Isaiah 61 isn't that long. Let's look it up in our Bibles. Let's make sure that it's still in there. If you have a Bible that does not have an Isaiah 61, you have problems. <laughs> this is the mission statement of Jesus' ministry, his public work on our behalf. And again, it's not a very long chapter. It's only 11 verses long. But we often just stop with verses 1 and a little bit into 2 and say, oh, that's good, I know Isaiah 61. No, but what I want to point out is this is the mission statement of Jesus' ministry. Uh, by the way, Jesus admitted this himself in the passage. He said, and he began to say to them, today this scripture is what? Fulfilled. He said, I am that. The guy the prophet was writing about in first person, I am that person. Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now what I want to focus on is this whole thing outlines his ministry, but let's go down to verse 11. Isaiah chapter 61, verse 11. Notice what we have here. For as the earth, brings forth its bud as the garden causes the things that are sown in it to spring forth. So, now let's pause right there. Notice he's used an analogy. As the garden, or as the earth, brings forth its bud or causes things to grow, so, when he says so, what does that mean? Therefore, or similarly, or in like manner, or in the same way, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. Okay? So here in the mission statement of Jesus' ministry, his public work, is revealed how the world will learn of the righteousness of God. It'll be like a garden that grows. And Jesus understood this, thus I believe he's always talking about plants, seeds. Soil, crops, and harvest so much because it was part of his prophetic mission statement. Now, we're not going to take too much time on this right now, but you realize that Jesus' public ministry was only three and a half years long. It wasn't that long at all. There was no way, and he didn't have the intention of doing all the work of sharing the gospel with the whole world by himself during his own public lifetime. In fact, it wasn't the gospel until he had completed his life and mission, right? And then when it was all done, he says, all authority has been given to me, therefore, go. And who is he talking to? The disciples. He didn't say, therefore, I'm going to go and tell my own story. He says, now you, and that construction, the you is implied, you go. So Christ understood he was laying the groundwork for a movement that would grow after he left. Does that make sense? Thus, Jesus was talking about this growth cycle because that's how the world would learn about the gospel. Okay. A spiritual process akin to the agricultural cycle is how God intends the knowledge of his righteousness to spread throughout the earth. As the earth causes that which is grown to uh, spring forth to bud, as the garden causes things in it to, to grow. So, just as the agricultural cycle includes soil preparation, there's five distinct steps, by the way. If you're, again, bullet point, note takers, number writers, whatever. Number one, soil preparation. Number two, seed planting. And number three, cultivation. 
Number four, harvest. And number five, preservation of the crop. So in the agricultural cycle, anytime a farmer goes out or a, a, a gardener goes out, there's always these steps that must be involved. You have to prepare the soil, sow the seed, cultivate the crop, harvest the crop, and then do something with it, preserve the crop. Okay. In the same way, the cycle of evangelism involves these sequential steps that are essential for true success in reaching people. Now, you can reach people without doing all of these steps, but it's not going to be done as well. It's not going to be done as far-reaching and as deeply seated. It's not going to be done as efficiently or effectively if you neglect any of these steps, okay? The five steps of the cycle of evangelism. So let's just go through them one by one. That's what this entire first presentation is, is a general overview of the five steps in the agricultural or evangelistic cycle. The first step in the cycle of evangelism is to prepare the soil of the heart. This is done by building friendship and trust, thus opening the doors for the reception of truth. We do this by drawing close to people through being kind. I know that seems like a radical thing. The very first thing you want to do is be nice. It's a really good first step. Being kind, intentionally social, right? You don't want to just haphazardly bump in. Like, you got a strategy in mind. You're aiming for something. You have an objective intentionally social, and ministering to practical needs. Okay, this is preparation of the soil. Let's go to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. Now, I have these on the PowerPoint because I go to places that not everybody brings their Bible, but this is the studious A-plus crowd. You're those Bible-toting, camp-meeting-going people, and I appreciate it. So let's just make sure it's in there. Luke chapter 8, starting with verse 11. Now, the parable is this. Oh, let's we start back up. Uh, let's go to verse 4. That's just the application. Let's start with verse 4. And when a great multitude had gathered, and they had come to him from every city, he spoke by a parable. Verse 5. A sower went out to, well, if he's a sower, what's he going to do? Sow his seed. As he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trampled down. And the birds of the air devoured it. Some fell on rock, and as soon as it sprang up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. Some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. Verse 8, but others fell on what kind of ground? Good ground. Sprang up and yielded a crop a hundredfold. And when he had said these things, he cried, he who has, an ears to hear, he has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, if you skip down to verse 11, Jesus decodes the whole thing. We could go around and guess and have opinions, but Jesus tells us exactly what he means. Now, the parable is this. Oops. Where do we go? Now, the parable is this. The seed is the what? The word of God. Those by the wayside are the ones who hear. Then the devil comes and takes away the word out of the hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. So the first group denotes some people that might have heard it being said, but it doesn't even land in the heart at all. The devil comes in, snatches away. They don't believe. They have no faith experience, and they're just out. Okay. Now next, verse 13. But the ones on the rocks are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. So they do take it in, right? And these have no what? Root. 
Thus they believe for a while and in time of temptation fall away. So they receive it. They not only hear it, but they also receive it. And it's good for a minute, but temptation comes along and they're out. Next group. Verse 14. Now the ones that fell among thorns are those who, when they've heard, go out and are choked with cares, riches, and pleasures of life, and bring no fruit to maturity. So notice these, this group apparently did grow, might have even stayed in the church, but they get caught up in everyday life, riches and pleasures, or whatever the stresses of the day may be, and what happens to their crop? It might still be physically there, the plant, but what's missing? Fruit, right? So they're not fruitful. You notice there's a progression there. One has no belief at all, one has a belief for a minute and is swept away. Others believe and kind of stay, but they don't bring fruit to maturity. But finally, there's that one group. But the ones that fell on the good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. And that's what you're looking for. Now notice this. The seed is the word of God. What's important to notice of, of the many lessons we could learn from this parable is, number one, that the seed was the same for every group of people. It's not like some people were one with the word of God, other people were one with something else. The seed is the same all the way through. It's all the word of God. Okay? Another thing to notice, there's no difference, the Bible lists no difference in the technique of the sower. It's not like he like, you know, went in rows this way and then he scattered it crazily this way or threw it up and let the wind carry it or threw it over his back. No, no, no. He sows the same seed the same way for every group. But there's a different outcome. So if we know the seed is the same and the technique is the same, what's the only thing that makes a difference in the outcome? The ground itself. And the ground in this parable represents different types of people. Specifically, not age or nationality or socioeconomic. This is not what they're talking about. It's the spiritual condition of the people, the condition of their heart, right? Notice the Bible specifically says that, right? The good ground, the ones that fell on good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with repentance. The only difference is the condition of the heart. Now, this should be, uh, if nothing else, helpful for us. If you've ever been frustrated Man, I shared glow tracks, I gave my personal testimony, they don't care. So, and you might be tempted, you know what, I need to try a different approach or use different material. No. They might not just be ready to hear word. They might not be able to hear the truth yet. That's just not where their head is, not where their heart is prepared for. Right? So before we even go in, there's a work to do of preparing the soil so we have the best chance. Right? So we could get into the whole of this, and there's, I promise you, as you go through this week, one of the things you're going to be dealing with how to spot the difference between someone who's ready and someone who's not. That was one of John, uh, not John Bradshaw, <laughs> Sean Boonstra. One of his main points, right? Don't necessarily just go out and pluck all the green fruit. It's not ready yet. We should be able to learn how to spot good fruit. Look for something. How do we know their spiritual interest? And those lessons are coming. But what I want to plant in your mind is there is a difference, and it's not the problem of the word, and it's not the problem of the messenger, it might be the recipient. What's the condition of their heart? So let's keep going. Christ's Object Lessons, page 57, Mrs. White writes, The sowers of the seed, which we all want to be sowers of the seed, have a work to do in preparing hearts to receive the gospel. In the ministry of the word, boy, this hurts to read, there is too much, what's that word? Sermonizing. 
Man, I hate to bring this up after we did Unlock Revelation. Night after night after night, we did five nights a week, six nights, you know, six meetings a week at, at the end of this thing we did. And we did our, after, uh, our phase two meetings, preaching and preaching and preaching. But she says there's too much sermonizing and too little of real what kind of work? Heart-to-heart work. There is need of personal labor for the souls of the lost. In Christ-like sympathy, we should come close to men individually and seek to awaken their interest in the great things of eternal life. Their hearts may be as hard as a beaten highway, and apparently it may be a useless effort to present the Savior to them. But while logic may fail to move, and argument be powerless to convince, the love of Christ revealed in personal ministry may soften the stony heart so that the seed of truth can take root. We have to do a work of tilling the soil. I have never met a farmer or gardener who buys seed, just goes out to a bare patch of ground and just starts, you know, sprinkling it, just spreading the seed with any expectation that they're going to have a good crop. They know intuitively you've got to prepare the ground to receive the seed. One of the problems we have sometimes is we'll run up to people and share spiritual seed and we don't realize we're just throwing it at a rock. We've got to spot the difference. And when there is tough ground, we should do things to help soften that soil so that when the seed comes, it's ready to be received, okay? Let's go to the second step. The second step in the evangelism cycle is to actually sow the seed of truth. That's kind of a given, right? We spent the whole time on soil prep with the expectation that we sow a seed. But I'll get into this in just a minute. We have a lot of churches that do a whole lot of soil prep, and they never actually sow the seed. After building friendship and trust, we should test the soil by planting seeds of truth. This is the time to share religious literature, media, and or our personal testimony. Okay? At some point, we have to transition from a, Help me t- let me take care of your needs, let me do a kindness and a gesture, and like I said, we're going to get into some of these things in more detail in a few minutes. But for now, the basic concept needs to be rooted that the purpose of preparing the soil is to sow the seed. That's it. So, Ecclesiastes. The Bible has a lot to say about this. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, through 6. He who observes the wind will not sow. Now, what does it mean to observe the wind? I thought we couldn't see the wind. What does it mean to observe the wind? Right, you're just kind of, you're looking for the effects of the wind, you're testing, you might throw things up, and you're, you're kind of checking the meteorological conditions, like, oh, maybe this isn't a good time, it's a little too windy, it's, a little, it's not just right yet, right? But he who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. So if you're always looking like, oh, but it's a little too cloudy, it's a little too windy, it's a little too this, or maybe there's not enough cloud, maybe there's not enough, if you're wait, waiting for just the right conditions, you know what's going to happen? You're never going to sow. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. So what's the solution? In the morning, sow your seed. And in the evening, do not withhold your hand. For, here's the reason, you do not know which will prosper. I don't know if you've ever had that experience. But sometimes you preach the word, and you've got some people you think, oh, man, they're on the line, they're ready to go, and they don't. But then out of nowhere comes this one person you thought wasn't interested, wasn't, and all of a sudden they're receptive, right? Or you might go door to door, and you might look at this house, and you might already make it a predetermination, like, oh, I'm a, this is a waste of time at this house. 
but you knock on that door, and lo and behold, they are more receptive and more interested in the person, and you don't want to tell them, like, ooh, I was, I was about to move past your house because I looked at it. You don't want to say that. But you, you kind of look and think, well, these people may not be in a place, but you just try. Just sow the seed. Work on them. Okay? For you do not know which will prosper, either this or that, or I love this last line, or whether both alike will be good. It might work for everybody. But you're never going to know unless you sow. That's what the point is here. Ecclesiastes. Now let's go to Isaiah. Chapter 32, verse 20. Blessed are you who sow beside what? All waters, who send out freely the feet of the ox and the donkey. When in doubt, share. When in doubt, sow the seed. It may not be perfect. It may not be everything expected. Maybe they're not exactly where, but give it a shot. Ms. White puts it this way. Testimonies, Volume 7, page 35. You are to sow the seeds of truth in every place. Wherever you can gain access, hold forth the word of God. Sow beside all waters. You may not at once see the result of your labors, but be not discouraged. Speak the words that Christ gives you. Work in his lines. Go forth everywhere as he did during his ministry on the earth. Love this last line. The world's redeemer had many hearers, but few followers. You realize that Jesus talked to more people than who followed him afterwards. I mean, the quintessential example of this is in John chapter 6, right? He feeds the 5,000, and the very next day he's like, all right, no more physical food. Let's make the transition. You notice that that's exactly what it is. He started preparing the soil of the heart, gives them what they need. They come back the next day, they're looking for seconds. And Christ says, no, no physical food today. Today you get the real thing. Today I'm going to give you the real bread of life, which is me. And in that memorable text, John 6, verse 66. And from that day, many followed him. It got so bad that he had to turn around to his tour 12 and said, are you all leaving too? Right? The world's redeemer had many hearers, but few followers. Far more people heard Jesus than followed Jesus. But praise God, he didn't quit. You just keep going. Too many people make the mistake of not sowing the seed of truth because they're afraid they'll do it poorly. And I think that's a legitimate thing. You don't want to misrepresent God. You don't want to uh, in any way taint the truth and get, offend them or do anything else. But even if you have legitimate concerns, those should be overcome because it would be much better to fail trying than guarantee failure by not trying at all. If you don't share what you have to share, they may not have something shared ever. While we never want to approach someone with Bible truth in a careless manner, and certainly not obnoxious or heavy-handed or anything like that, we far too often go to the opposite extreme of being so cautious that we never actually sow the seed. It's better to risk failure because of a poor approach than to guarantee failure by making no approach at all. Just give it a shot. Sow beside all waters, and you don't know which or if both alike will succeed. That's just it. The third step. And again, we're especially those first two steps we're going to come back to and highlight a bit more. The third step in the evangelism cycle is to cultivate the interest through Bible study. 
We're going to spend a little bit of time on this. When someone responds positively to spiritual seed, that interest needs to be cultivated by the Word of God. This is best accomplished through weekly personal Bible studies. Okay. So let's go through the steps that we have so far. You start by cultivating the, not cultivating, but preparing the soil, right? And getting them ready through personal works and interpersonal relationships and meeting their needs, those kind of activities, okay? So you do that for a while. And what generally happens is if churches do that, they do a lot of that. And what ends up happening then is they just till the soil, till the soil, and when they're done, instead of sowing seed, they're like, all right, let's go back in, and they till the soil some more. And so we have very well-prepped hearts, some good relationships made, but no seed is actually sown. But then let's say that you actually do prepare the soil, then you sow the seed, you hand out the glow track, you give out the DVD, you share your personal testimony, whatever it is, and they have an interest in spiritual things. Let's say that you go knocking on doors. Let's, and in fact, that might be hypothetical now, but I'm pretty sure it's about to become reality later in the week. Praise the Lord. But let's say that you do that, and in working with different church groups and going on outreach projects, um, I have a little theory in my mind, and I could be wrong, though I don't like the thought of that, um, that people are more afraid of someone saying yes than they are afraid of them saying no. Now you hear, oh, I, I want to go out door to door. Oh, I'm afraid. And what are they afraid of? Oh, someone's going to be rude. They're going to shut the door in my faith. They're going to be mean. They're going to be. I don't think that's the problem. I think that people are kind of expecting a rejection. They go up to the door, and what if something happens and it fulfills that self-fulfilling prophecy? Right, right, right. Knock on the door. Oh, get on out of here. People are like, oh, I've been wounded for the cause. Ah. They kind of relieve, like, oh, I've done my duty. I got my scar. And it demonstrates that I'm not gifted in this area. It's not my gift. Right? I think you've already covered that. Witnessing is not a spiritual gift. Now, we can improve our abilities at it, but what would happen, I think more church members are prepared for that than they are if someone, when you knock on the door, hi, would you like to, yes, I would. I'm so excited. I've been praying for someone to come and open the word of God to me. Can you start right now? <laughs> right? Then you're standing with your face all hanging out like, I was not expecting that. I had no expectation that you would ever say yes. I thought it was just doing my, you know, penance or something. I was going through the, and I was just enduring the inevitable rejection, and all of a sudden, you actually want to study. We don't know what to do. We don't have our little Google calendar ready to make an appointment. We don't have a Bible study guide. We're usually just kind of randomly hoping we're bumping into something that may be a little good and somebody else will follow up with it, right? But what happens if you meet someone who actually wants to study the Bible with you? What you don't want to do is say, hang on, let me go get my pastor. There are people out there. You will run into them. If you offer to study the Bible with someone, someone's going to say yes. And I know it's a radical idea, but somebody's going to say yes. And then what do you do? A lot of churches spend time in those first two phases of the evangelistic cycle. For instance, you, let's say you want to do a, uh, a, a, a meeting people's needs thing. You want to do a cooking class or a health expo. Those are big right now. Like the Pathways to Health, praise the Lord. You've been following along with those? Fantastic. I mean, thousands of people have been reached in a day. And it takes some preparation going into it, but the execution of it, the meet and greet, the actual pressing the flesh with people only takes a day or two. It's actually a pretty quick event. 
you check their blood pressures, you know, you find out if they have cavities or whatever the thing is, you fix them up with a haircut and send them on their way, you give them a glow track, they're like, good. So you prepare the soil. Or you could do, if your church has ever done a glow-a-thon, or you have some sort of literature distribution, something or another, and everybody's passing, these are, you can go out and do 500 of them in an afternoon. It's easy. You say, oh, okay, we did that in a day. We did. And just like the agricultural cycle. Unless you're in some huge industrial, you know, farming conglomerate, probably the tilling of the soil, even for the average farmer, only takes a day or two. Right? You just kind of hook on the tractor, even do it by hand in your backyard garden, and the preparation of the soil isn't that hard. I mean, it might be a laborious, but it's not long-lasting. And then the sowing of the seed, how long does that take? Not much time at all. But where the real time is involved is the cultivation process, right? Watering the stuff, weeding the stuff, tending to the stuff, keeping the bugs away, ongoing care as it slowly, slowly. And this is where I get frustrated. I'll be honest. In real life gardening, this is where my Achilles heel is. I think it's great to set up the garden. I like to imagine its size. I like to till the soil. I think it's great. But then you put the seed in, and it just sits there. And you ever do one of those little experiments where you have a little cup or a planter, a little soil thing, you know? Your kids bring it home for VBS or whatever, and it's got a seed in there. And you water it, and a day goes by, nothing. Another day goes by, nothing. Another day goes by, nothing. And finally, after four, I just throw the thing out. It's just, this is mind-numbing. It's so slow. I mean, it's, there's literally a phrase. It's like watching grass grow, right? It takes time. And if you really want to care for it, you've got to do all this kind of Here's what's going to happen. If you have someone who says yes to a Bible study, almost guarantee the very first Bible study, they're going to have forgot there was soccer practice. They're going, oh, I'm sorry, I've got to cancel this one. Next week is, oh, we got a cold. I, I, sorry, it's not a good time to come over. And then they'll go to lesson one. It took you three weeks to get there. You go back, and they forgot all of lesson one. The next week, you have to do it again. All right, now you're on the fourth or fifth week, and they had another cancellation. It's slow as molasses and frustrating. And here's what's really frustrating. They do lesson seven, and then they just kind of get disinterested or something, and it starts waning. And you're like, I poured two months into you, and it's not happening. You know, it's just infuriating. It's so much easier to do the soil prep stuff. It's so much easier to hand out 500 million glow tracks, which I'm not against at all. But the actual one-on-one, heart-to-heart, face-to-face, people-to-people work, ooh, and you're going to go into houses that smell, dogs that bite, kids that are all running around, misbehaved. I mean, you're going to people who don't have Jesus in their life. They've got a lot of bad habits, a lot of stuff going on, and it's going to be a pain. But that's where the real work lies. I think Elder Howard was talking to you about that earlier. This is what he called the bottleneck, right? This is where it is, right here. When someone responds positively to spiritual seed, that interest must be cultivated by the word of God. This is a best accomplished through weekly personal Bible studies. And I'm pretty sure he mentioned I had to step out, but in that bottleneck that he referred to, that everyone who becomes a part of God's remnant church, the Seventh-day Adventist movement, is going to go through some course of Bible studies. You have to. All right? It's in the baptismal vows. Do you understand and believe this? Do you accept this? Do you promise to do such and such? You had to know it first. So you're either going to go through a big public campaign and have a small little uh, follow-up, you know, or you're going to have a long series of personal Bible studies. But everyone's going to have to go through this process of Bible study. 
This is the net need in our, in our churches right now. This is 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 2 says, As newborn babes, right, those new in the faith, those just open to the word of God, just tasting for the first time. As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the what? Word that you may grow thereby. You're only going to grow in Christ as you feed on his word. You can have all the personal relationships you want and have great music at church and have all those things, but at some point, you have to come to know your Savior through the Word, period. It has to happen. If, indeed, you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. We saw this in Acts chapter 8. Philip was told to go to the Ethiopian and run to him. Philip ran to him and heard him reading from the prophet Isaiah and said, Do you understand what you're reading? Now, again, we go, let's go and find this one here. Let's get a little context. Isaiah, I'm sorry, uh, Acts chapter 8, he's reading from Isaiah. In Acts chapter 8, again, we covered this a bit in the morning devotional, but this man, was he a believer or non-believer? He was a believer already, okay? How do we know that? It was already reading the book of Isaiah, but give me some more in-depth. What else do we know about him? He was on his way back from Jerusalem, having done what? Worship there, right? So he was going to Jerusalem for worship. He was a student of the Word of God. So you might think, well, what else does he need Bible study for? He already has a relationship with God through his Word. No, he didn't know Jesus yet. He needed the present truth, the application in life. This is about Jesus Christ, right? So in Acts chapter 8, verse 26, Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he arose and went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge over all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning and sitting in his chariot. He was reading Isaiah the prophet. Pause right there. Our message needs to go not only to non-Christians, but also to Christians as well. I don't know if you catch that. I have a little bit of a beef with the terms churched and unchurched. The implication is, oh, oh, they're part of the Nazarene church already. Well, they're done. No, 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 no. See, the difference is this man knew the doctrines. He just didn't know Jesus. In our society today, most evangelicals know Jesus, but they don't know the doctrines. They don't know the truth about the second coming. They don't know the truth about the state of the dead. They don't know the truth about Bible prophecy. They don't know the truth about the heavenly sanctuary. They don't know the truth about health reform. They don't know the truth about these distinctive features of our faith. There are like great many Christians who are cultural Christians who might know the name of Jesus and have heard the Christmas story, but they don't even know about the Old Testament prophecies about his coming. They don't understand the richness that the Bible provides. This man was already aware of the feasts and the, and the, and the Sabbath truth and the sanctuary, all of that. He just didn't know his fulfillment was in Jesus Christ. Right? He had all the spokes, he just didn't have the axle. But a lot of the people who know now today have heard the name of Jesus, the center wheel, but they don't know the wheel that supports it, right? They don't know the spokes. They don't know the doctrine. So we live in an age that's actually the inverse of Acts chapter 8, but the need of personal Bible study is still there. The need is still there. Anyway, let's keep reading here. Acts chapter 8, again verse 28, And sitting in his chariot was reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the Spirit said to Philip, Go near and overtake this chariot. And I'll say this again. Uh, let me clarify this even more. One of the most misunderstood passages in the Bible is John chapter 3 and verse 16. 
Now, we all know that by heart. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not what? But have. So what are our two choices? Perish or everlasting life. Die or live. Most Christians would say, that's right. You have two choices. Live forever with Jesus or live forever in hell. They'll say it, say it says it right there in the Bible. We'll say, no, that's not what the Bible actually says perish. They say, no, no, it says live. What? They're so They've got a, a cultural Christianity picture in their head that for them the sky is red no matter what you say, right? So they'll look at John 3.16 and said, watch out, you're going to spend forever in hell. It's like, but that's not what the text says. You'll either spend forever with Jesus or you'll perish. They don't understand the state of the dead even though it's sitting right there saying it. This man was looking at the prophecies and he had watched the lambs, he had seen, but he didn't know the fulfillment in Jesus. There are people out there who have the word of God in their hands and don't know what they're looking at. And they're saying the same thing that this man. Philip ran to him and said, hearing him read the prophet Isaiah, and said, do you understand what you're reading? Man, I see, I see evangelical churches try to dive into the books of Daniel and Revelation. Just make a hash of the whole thing. A mess, right? They don't have that interpretive key of the heavenly sanctuary to unfold all these truths. So they're just guessing, and they're all over the place, right? They can look at Bible, the Bible scriptures, passages in the Bible, and not know what they're looking at. This man was having the same experience. And he said, how can I unless someone does what? Guides me, explains it to me. And he asked him, Philip to come up and sit with him. The place in the scripture he read was this, and he read from Isaiah 53, what we know now as Isaiah 53. And of course, you know beyond there, just says that Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. Notice he did not say, oh, let me just tell you what it is. How did he demonstrate that Jesus was the Messiah? Through scripture. Starting with the question point he had, Isaiah 53, start with where they are and then branch out more than what they expected and make a case for Christ based on the word of God. Philip opened his mouth and preached Jesus to him. Evangelism, page 338, says this. It is not preaching alone that must be done. Far less preaching is needed. Now, I, I, I want to be clear. I think we should do our public evangelism campaigns. I'm fine with there being a sermon every Sabbath in every Seventh-day Adventist church, even though Mrs. White says we shouldn't expect one every Sabbath. It's okay. You're pampered. But the real need is not more preaching. Far less preaching is needed. More time should be devoted to patiently educating others, giving the hearers opportunity to express themselves. Let's talk about the state of the dead, like that John 3.16 thing. If someone were to accept the Bible truth that the dead are not consciously enduring hell or enjoying heaven, that the dead are simply dead, you know, it seems such a, you think, you and I don't appreciate what a radical concept it is to know that dead people are dead. Most people think dead people are alive. I know it seems so weird to us, right? But most, and think about that presenting to someone who's thought that for 30, 40, 50 years. And they've been comforted by the fact that their grandma's been watching them. And you have to break it to them. Now, I'm not saying you won't see grandma again. I'm just saying she's not seeing you now. Do you think they might have some questions? 
or some objections or maybe even some feelings and emotion tied to that misunderstanding. Sure, it's going to be better if they have the opportunity to talk about it, to share with you why that's so important. It goes back to one of the things I said in the first morning devotional. Most, most of the issues with the Bible truth that people have is not the challenge of understanding it. It's the challenge of applying it. What does it mean for my life? That means that grandma's not here, right? Whatever the thing is. So they need an opportunity. I mean, you can do everything from, I mean, to talk about health reform. <laughs> I love this one, you know? You run into people and they find out that the, the Bible ideal is a whole foods plant-based diet. Like, so you're a vegetarian. Yep. I've had this question asked more times. What do you eat? It's like, well, I thought it was in the name of vegetation, right? But in their minds, you only eat like four things. Chicken, beef, fish, maybe some seafood, pork. All right, five things, right? And I was like, all right, keep going. What else? Like, what do you mean? Well, then I have chicken again. <laughs> they just go through the cycle. Their life is like this, and everything else is just the stuff on the side of the chicken. So think about the practical implications. Like, I don't know how to cook. I don't know how to shop anymore. You just changed everything. Tithes and offerings. You mean I got to live on 90%? Well, no. It's going to be less than that because you're going to give offerings too. <laughs> I can barely make it on 100%. Yeah. This is going to take, they're going to have some questions. And it's not because they don't get it. It's just it doesn't harmonize with the life that they're currently living. Right, so this makes sense. More time should be devoted to patiently educating others. I cannot emphasize the patiently enough. Giving the hearers opportunity to express themselves. It is instruction that many need. Line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. You build a wall one block at a time. And it's not going to be in one week. You're going to come back next week, and you have to build a little bit more. They're growing, but it's that slow work of cultivation it's so desperately needed. This nurturing work is by far the most time-consuming, most labor-intensive, and potentially disappointing. Friends, oh, the frustration that comes after 10 weeks with somebody, and they're like, eh, I'm good. I'm done. He's like, you can't be done. I bought into you, right? But you got to let them go, right? But other times it's going to pay off, right? You don't know. You just got to put your hand at the plow and go to work. Where soil preparation and seed sowing may take a day or two, cultivation requires continued effort over weeks or months. This is the greatest need in soul winning today. We need individuals to go talk to other individuals and patiently walk them through the Word of God. Are we making sense so far? All right. The fourth step in the evangelism cycle is harvesting the crop by decisions for baptism. You don't want to pre just present the truth and have them acknowledge that it makes sense. What you're looking for is a commitment to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and dedicate their lives to him. Okay? The fourth step is this harvesting for, by making decisions for baptism. After cultivating the interest with Bible studies, it is time to lead those embracing the truth to make decisions for baptism. And I'll be, <laughs> I'm trying to get out of my vocabulary saying, I'm, I'll be honest with you right now which implies that I've been dishonest with you up until this point. But I'll be vulnerable with you at this point. I've been a pastor for over 15 years, and I still don't like making calls. 
I don't want to be the guy who has a few hundred people out there and no one comes down. So it's so tempting to round off the edges and say, do you love Jesus? Stand to your feet. Everybody's going to stand up, right? But to say, are you ready to make a commitment, make a change? Right here, right now, are you ready to go into that watery grave and come down front? Because the assumption is, if they're ready, oh, I did my job well. If they're not ready, oh. Right? But what you're doing is not an evidence of your work. It's formalizing and finalizing Christ's work that's been going on in them. But you're giving them the opportunity to, to express themselves. Right? Decisions for Christ are most often made in personal Bible studies or public evangelistic meetings followed by a baptismal preparation class. Kind of going through with this. Psalm 126, verses 5 and 6. Those who sow in tears shall, and I love that the affirmative is there, shall, not might, not could, shall reap in what? Enjoy. It's going to work out. Now, not, maybe not 100% of the time, but you're going to get something successful, okay? He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. There is assurance of success in soul-winning work if you're a diligent, uh, 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 continual, faithful sower of the seed, a worker for Christ. Review and Herald, April 24, 1883. The salvation of sinners requires earnest personal labor. We are to bear to them the word of life, not to wait for them to come to us. I cannot emphasize that enough. Our job as the church is not to decorate the church so beautifully, come up with a logo so inspiring, or a church sign with those little movable letters so enthralling that they'll just come marching in. Most people are not going to voluntarily just step into your church. You're going to have to walk over and meet them and talk to them and go find them. Right? Personal labor. We're to bear with it to them the word of God, not to wait for them to come to us. With personal piety and a consistent course of life, our earnest, heartfelt appeals will be through God as sharp arrows of the Almighty to pierce the sin-hardened heart, as sharp sickles to reap a precious harvest for the heavenly garner. God wants to use you as an individual to be a mouthpiece for him and appeal to sinners. That's why the Bible calls it the ministry of reconciliation. And at some point, you can't just present the word of God, though you've been doing that faithfully. You want to contact them and say, not only do you understand what we read, but do you sense God's calling you to this commitment? Are you ready to, to give your life to Jesus Christ and surrender to him in baptism? Now, that has a risk to it, but the reward is worth it. I love this thought. Crops never harvest themselves. I might get behind GMOs if they can come up with a crop that will come off the tree all on its own and walk over to the truck. You know? But that hasn't been invented yet, agriculturally or spiritually. It just doesn't exist. People might sit there and understand what you're saying. Yep. But if you don't make that appeal, if you don't ask the question, if you don't challenge them and call them to that decision, they'll stand there being convinced, being convicted, 
and leave unconverted. They need an invitation. It's an embarrassing thing, but I have to tell you this truth. This happened to me as well, Pastor Mark Coward. Not only did I get the Ananias and Sapphira thing wrong, only once though, come on, but I got something even, at least in my life, uh, <laughs> more importantly wrong. Uh, my wife is uh, the single most beautiful woman in the world. I'm very happy to be married to her. And I'll tell you very briefly the story of how we got engaged. Um, I'll, be, I'll be honest, I did everything awesome. It was great. I, had, I went to, had a very expensive restaurant picked out. Never going to do that again. Um, but I went ahead of time, got the seating arranged, made sure they knew my name so they could pronounce it right. I didn't want any of this Devasher, Devasher stuff. No, Mr. Devasher, your table's ready. Yes, it is. Come on. Took her in there, had a nice, nice meal, had a good conversation. It was Valentine's Day. You know she had to see it coming, right? And she thought I was going to ask her at dinner, but no, 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 no. I'm not going to be all cliche. We're going to go for a walk. And took her, we were in Washington, D.C. We went down on the mall where all the monuments were and stuff. We went to, had this one place picked out. And we just happened to be strolling by at the right time. It was a beautiful evening. I had a little gift I wanted to give her. And at the right place and at the right time, the lighting was just, oh, it was, oh, it was good. I knelt down on my knees. I took her hand. And I gave my prepared speech. And it was a good one had it written down. It was just nice. And at the end of it, I said, pretty sure this is exactly what I said, I would be honored if you would be my wife. And I thought that was really a beautiful, powerful line. And she sat there, and she was like, and I started waiting, like, come on now. I said I would be honored if you would be my wife. What was she waiting for? I never asked the question, right? I sat there with, I was down on my knee. I'd be honored. And she was like, just pleasant and stuff. Just. <laughs> she had nothing to respond to, right? I was just making statements of declaration. This is what I would like. This is what, but at no point did I say, would you be willing? Would you like? Are you? And finally, she kind of, it was, we awkwardly stumbled through that moment because I was, I landed on that line. I thought it was great. I didn't know what she was thinking about. And then she finally was like, oh, yes, oh, okay, thank you. It was, and I was like, good. Why was it so clumsy? So we got back in the car and everything and we we're driving home. She's like, do you realize you'd never actually asked me? I was like, I put all that time and effort into it and you're getting hung up on the fact that I didn't actually ask you. She's like, well, you didn't. So it was actually, technically, we got engaged in the car on the way home. <laughs> when I was like, fine, will you marry me? She's like, yes. Okay, good. And that was it. <laughs> but we had gone through all of these steps all the way and we got to the end point and I was like, yeah, so, all right. And I was going to head home and she thought, she was left there just hanging out, right? I think there are plenty of people who see the word of God, are convinced of it, are even convicted. And they're just waiting for an invitation. And we just kind of leave them hanging because we're too timid. What if they say no? Well, they might say no, but they'll probably say yes. Crops never harvest themselves. you got to ask the question. <laughs> yeah. So step number five. The fifth step 
we gotta, we're racing the clock a little bit. We're doing fine. The fifth step in the evangelism cycle is preserving new members through a practical discipleship course. Preserving new members through a practical discipleship course. After baptism, new members should be led through a systematic discipleship plan. Boy, I can't emphasize this enough. We spend all kinds of time, energy, and money getting ready to prepare the soil, sow the seed, have the big evangelistic campaign, present the truth. And then we'll even praise the Lord and sing out loud when people get baptized, as we should. But then what happens? We take the banners down. We go from five nights a week to like prayer meeting where six people show up. And it just kind of, the whole thing implodes. And the new people, they're coming in, all right, I'm ready to go. And they, hey, what happened? Where'd everybody go? They all packed up and went home, and I'm all just standing here with my little certificate in hand. But what is it? And think about it. I think I mentioned this in the morning devotion too, but if you've gone through a series of meetings, I mean, we're, it's a pretty fast pace, right? You'll hear about one night, you know, stay the dead. Grandma's not in heaven. Next, while you're grieving, there's a sanctuary in heaven, and the secret rapture you've all believed is not true. Next, right? you got to change your diet. Huh? Next. And you just hit it rapid fire where they might have heard one message on the 2300 days. But could they explain it again to someone else? Probably not. So they don't disagree with it. They're just not necessarily grounded in it. It's not theirs yet. They've made a mental checklist. They've understood it. But it hasn't been woven into their Christian experience. So we wonder why we baptized 10 people and six months later, only four, five of them are there, right? Full year later, we got two or three left. What happened? We, we have an imbalanced approach, I believe, to evangelism sometimes. We need to do just as much follow-up work as we do preparation work, right? There should be a process in place. And, and I want to change our level of expectation. Please disabuse your mind of the, of the mere hope of retaining the new members. Just keeping them in the church is not good enough. We need to put them to work for Jesus Christ as soul winners. I, would, I mean, I would love to see everybody stay, but I want more than staying. We need more than members. We need missionaries. And this is what our job is, to make disciples who are in turn disciple makers, right? We got to get there. So, it is here that the disciple is trained to make other disciples, thus adding to the growth of the church. Uh, Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven, and do not return there but water the earth and make it bring forth in bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Right? So when we harvest this, you know, the, it's bad enough to let a tomato go uh, uh, bad on the vine right, to rot on the vine. But if you take it in the house and you just set it there, what's it going to do? Rot there too. So even after the harvest, there's a work to do to make that crop profitable, right? You got to put it through a process. It's got to be preserved in some way, either so it can go to seed for the next crop or food for us, right? That's what the, that's what the Bible is saying, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall, the word that, uh, shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth, it shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. Right? 
So we need to have a, a higher expectation of new members than just hoping they stay. We need to have a higher expectation that they are going to be active participants in the life of the church and soul winners in their own right. This is what Jesus said in John chapter 4 to the woman at the well. He was transitioning from the spiritual water, I mean to the, from the physical water to the spiritual water, right? And when he talks about it, he said, whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. So they will be satisfied personally. But, oh, we need to plug in. Well, let's just do it real quick. Let's just get, get through our notes real quick, see what happens. Okay, maybe we aren't allowed to do this. But anyway, they're not just supposed to receive it for themselves. Is there a plug somewhere here, Emmanuel, that you know of? Whatever. Let's go quick. Whoever drinks the water I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall become in him a what? Fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. And what's the very first thing the woman at the well does? She goes and does what? Tells other people. You guys got to come see. Have you ever met a new Seventh-day Adventist? In fact, in this room, have you ever been a new Seventh-day Adventist? How, do you recall your first love experience? When you came to the truth, you heard about the, whatever the, the Sabbath truth is, or the, the mark of the beast, or whatever. You go to the water fountain. You go to your proverbial you know, water cooler, and you're talking with your friends, family, relatives, neighbors, whatever, and they want to talk about the game, and you want to talk about prophecy, right? They'll say, hey, did you catch that game the other night? You're like, forget about the game. What about the mark of the beast, right? And new members are oftentimes very intense in their faith, right? Now, that's great. Now, could they be taught to share more effectively? Sure. But I would much rather have to harness that energy. But you watch when people come in. Six weeks into the message, on fire. Six months, there's a fire, but it might be on a low simmer, right? Six years, if they're there at all, they're going to be sitting in a pew doing what everybody else does. And most churches, in fact, I've never seen a church that puts on a how to be a bad, lifeless, useless member course. But somehow we're all trained to be useless and lifeless. It's not something we have to do intentionally. It just becomes what happens, right? We need to consciously, purposely resist that tendency. Does that make sense? Right. So we need to build people up. Love this one. It is an eternal law of Jehovah that he who accepts the truth is to make it his first work to proclaim the truth. It's a law of God. And I don't know if that means like, therefore you must do it or you're in trouble. I think it's a law like gravity is a law. He who falls off a tree must fall, <laughs> right? If you've received the truth, it's automatic. It's just going to start coming out of you, right? But who is it that makes the burden of perishing sinners his own? Among God's people today, there is a fearful lack of the sympathy that should be felt for souls unsaved. We talk of Christian missions. The sound of our voices is heard, but do we feel Christ's tender heart longing for those outside the fold? This one was already shared. It is evident that all the sermons that have preached have not developed a large class of self-denying workers. This subject is to be considered as involving the most serious results. The churches are withering up because they have failed to use their talents in diffusing light. You may think you have a bad pastor, and you might, who knows, but odds are your church's problem is not a bad pastor. It's because there isn't the mindset that we are here to spread the truth and win souls. 
and all the membership, right? Careful instruction. I'm sorry? Sure. Review and Herald, December 3, 1908. No problem. Careful instruction should be given, uh, which will be as lessons from the master, that all may put their light to practical use. It is little, by the way, this is just my thoughts now. You see there's no Bible on the picture and there's no spirit of prophecy. Like, this is just me. But it is little wonder that retention rates are so, of newly baptized members are so poor. If the excitement of a public campaign fades and the truth has only been accepted in theory but not in practice, what else should we expect? Hmm. Thus, let's bring it to a close this way. We need to embrace the full cycle of evangelism. By the way, this cycle of evangelism, these five steps, this is the template for your personal soul-winning endeavor as an individual member, also the template for your corporate work as a local church. I won't even start on the corporate stuff, but that's really where my bread and butter is. That's where I really like to talk about is like the, the uh, functional structure of the church, kind of the stuff that Pastor uh, Jim Howard was alluding to earlier. The, like, what's the board there for? Why do we have these different departments? What are these positions there to do? Well, it's to do the work of winning, soul winning. We should have a calendar every year, and it should lead from this to this to this. We should have a plan. We should have some sort of, but there's too much um, buckshot and not enough bullet. Do you know what I mean? We see that in sermons oftentimes. This isn't a preaching practice, but a lot of sermons don't have a point. They might have a lot of good points, oftentimes unrelated, spewing out in every which direction, and you might take from that something, but you didn't hear that one point in the sermon. Okay? Our churches oftentimes will have a Pathfinder program over here and a women's ministry thing over here and an evangelistic outreach and prayer meeting and this, and they're all going different directions, but not coordinated to have an objective of winning souls. We need more bullets and less buckshot. We need to embrace the full cycle of evangelism, both individually and corporately, to grow believers in the word, making them genuine disciples of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you a question. Has everything we presented made sense? Praise the Lord. I'm not ready to make an appeal yet. <laughs> But we're going to come back. We're going to take a quick break. Then we're going to come back and look at at least the first two, uh, two items there, the soil preparation and the seed sowing. And maybe we'll get some even better ideas churning for how to take this theory and apply it in your local church. Amen? This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.